0: Acts 28, and beginning at verse 1. Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. (coughs) However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to worship you, to grow, uh, to understand you better and your purposes. And we pray that you would anoint my lips as I preach and anoint each one here as we seek to honor you through the word, uh, illumine our minds, and uh, may your spirit sanctify us through the scripture. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I think most of you have uh, been getting my emails over the last uh, couple of days about my brother John. And for those of you who did not, um, he uh, contracted malaria on his last trip to Sierra Leone. And over the last 11 days, he has had a raging, uh, raging bout of malaria. In fact, um, when he came into the hospital. His blood pressure is extremely dangerously low. He had liver damage. His kidneys were almost non-functioning. He was in a real bad situation. They thought he was going to die. A lot of people don't realize malaria is a pretty dangerous disease. It's the number one killer in Africa. Uh, There's over one million people every year that die of malaria in Africa. That's one of the reasons why I'm such a proponent of DDT being reintroduced And uh, praise God, there's a couple of African countries say, this is nuts what the UN is saying, we're using DDT. And uh, that pesticide by itself, which does not do the damage, people claim it does, but that one pesticide would save millions uh, of lives uh, every year. But anyway, John was in intensive care unit in Minneapolis uh, Hospital. And um, yesterday afternoon, I got word that uh, he's kind of turned the corner and is much uh, improving, uh, is getting more kidney function back. I guess there will probably be permanent damage to parts of his liver, but you can get by with uh, even small portions of your liver, praise the Lord, uh, for that. So anyway, I thank you for your prayers for him. But you know, when you have painful detours like that, the tendency for us is to ask, why? Why does the Lord uh, allow things like that to, to happen? Uh, We know doctrinally that nothing that God does is wasted, nothing. But from a human perspective, it seems like there's a whole lot of waste that goes on in life, and I think we could uh, think that from a human perspective in Acts chapters 27 and 28 as well. Here was Paul in the first part of his trip, slowed down by all kinds of hindrances, and it appears that he's having wasted time. And then he warns the people, uh, including the captain of the ship, of the danger that's going to be coming, and he's ignored. And so there's a lot of wasted energy, and now the ship is wrecked, and there is a lot of wasted uh, uh, goods that uh, are down on the bottom of the sea. In fact, uh, as far as we can tell here, uh, apart from the clothing that they had on their backs, everything they owned was at the the bottom of the ocean. So they, they lost a lot. Certainly all the cargo was lost. And when you're in the middle of a situation like that, it's very easy to fail to see God's hand. You just think, this is, these are just chance, random, ridiculous events. Vance Havner said, the unseen hand may be obscured at times by the fogs of circumstance, but just because we can't see the sun on a cloudy day doesn't mean that it isn't there. And I think that's so true. You can see that in many stories in the Bible in the book of Genesis, uh, Joseph no doubt wondered, where is God's hand when his brothers are trying to kill him? And then later they tried to sell him down into, into Egypt through the Midianites. But from hindsight, we're looking at the story and we can see God's hand written all over that story. We see God's hand in the waterless pit. I mean, if there was water in that pit, it would not be a good thing. We see his hand in the Midianite traders coming at just the right time or Potiphar being willing to buy him. And so from a a, a vantage point that we have looking back, we can see God's hand written everywhere. And this is one of the reasons why Henry Law, the Puritan writer, said, No sparrow falls, no leaf decays, but in accordance with his ordering mind. He wills and things occur. Chance is a figment of... Of a dreaming pillow. It never was, it never can be. Thus, to the child of God, there is no trifle or unimportant event. Momentous issues often hang on rapid words, on sudden looks, on unintended steps. And I think that is so true. One tiny little mosquito bite, you know, has made a major impact on my brother's life. Uh, it's, uh, you know, ruined a whole bunch of family time, ruined a bunch of ministry opportunities and trips that he had in mind. But I think by faith, we can say that God's hand was in that mosquito bite every bit as much as God's hand was in the events that we've been looking at in chapters 27 and 28, uh, 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 of the book of Acts. And we need to get used to viewing life providentially. Vance Havner said, if you know how to read between the lines of secular history, you will see that God is writing another history, and I think that's very, very true. We're going to look first of all at God's hand in providence, and I want to back up into chapter 27, and uh, let's begin reading at verse 42, and the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. Now, that would have been the end of the Apostle Paul, but for some reason, this uh, hardened soldier takes a liking to the Apostle Paul, beginning at verse 43. It says, But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. God's hand moved the soldier to like Paul, and in the process he says, okay, everybody jump overboard, we're going to swim to land, and he, he's deliberately trying to thwart the purpose of these soldiers. Now he could have just as easily said, uh, hey, I think I can manage Paul, you can kill the rest of the people, but he didn't do that, and the reason was God's hand was involved, God had prophesied every person would be saved, and so every person must be saved. And so an unseen hand barred the normal Roman practice. Uh, secondly, in those verses we just read, we saw two groups of people. There is people who can swim, people who cannot swim, and even excellent swimmers can drown in really stormy conditions. And this was pretty stormy. Uh, one of the um, books that writes about that part of Malta during storm says, they're incredibly fierce waves. Uh, it's just a terrible thing, to anybody to be swimming through. It would have been easy for the non-swimmers to lose their flotation devices such as they were. You know, you jump off of a ship with a board that you're hanging onto. That board can sh- go right out of your hands. Or if you're falling into the water because the ship is breaking apart, you know, to be able to actually grab onto something without sinking if you don't know how to swim. You don't just expect this ordinarily that all 276 people are going to make it to shore. And yes, they, yet they did. Fifth. God could have made it possible to beach that ship in a way where the ship would have been spared. He could have done that. It would have been very easy. In fact, there was an excellent harbor there that they missed. (laughs) They couldn't get into that harbor. They later on sail out of the harbor. But God ensures that it sticks at just the right point, according to verse 41, where there's two different currents that are coming, and this thing is being beaten to smithereens, And the reason is, God says the ship has to be destroyed, and so it will be destroyed. We see God's hand at work there. A sixth, it's providence that makes them run aground on an island rather than on a reef where everything would be lost, or it could have been on a coastland. And then the most remarkable thing (coughs) to me is that they land on Malta. Now the name itself I think is cool because the name means a place of refuge, but just think of how unlikely this was. At one point, they were being driven by the winds. If you look at your map, they were being driven the opposite direction, 375 miles away into the Surtis Sands. They're doing everything that they can to get away from that. But after a while, it becomes dark, and for 14 days, they don't know where they're at. They don't know what direction that they are going, and they're not just going one direction. If you look at verse 27... It says, we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea. Now, back in the first century, uh, the Adriatic Sea was not just the little part up north. It covers everything from Crete in the Mediterranean all the way over to the, um, the island of Malta. That's all the Adriatic Sea. So as they're being driven up and down and all over the place... Uh, they're traversing probably quite a bit of territory, not just the little wiggly line that you have on on the map there. That's like a needle in a haystack, and yet God makes them so they end up at Malta just perfectly on the way to Italy, as if that was the intended journey uh, after all. It's just an amazing thing. And yet God is not only the God who superintends and makes probabilities work, He overrules probabilities in favor of His people as well. Uh, second, the fact that they landed on Malta instead of one of the other islands is a wonderful act of providence. Uh, if they had landed in Lenosa Island or Comino Island, they probably at this time would have been overpowered by pirates. Uh, if they had landed at Cathera Island, they probably would not have found anybody because right around this period of time the pirates had wiped out the population. And uh, so they would have starved to death on that place. They probably would have been killed in the previous islands. There were other unpopulated islands, including one that had no vegetation, another that had no water. And so God makes them land right where they need to land. And part of the reason for that is that history tells us this entire island was converted to Christianity through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. God had His elect there. They have to go there. They're not going to go to any other island, any other place. And again, unlike many other islands, this one would have provided more protection from the wind. Perfect harbor that later on there's going to be a ship coming to and it's going to take them on uh, to Italy. And it all speaks of the superintendence of a wise and a loving God. And of course, lest we think it was chance, take a look at verses 21 through 26 of chapter 27. He gives a prophecy. And every detail of this prophecy has to be fulfilled. Now, I want to give a little side note here <clears throat> because there, there is a theory out there uh, in charismatic circles that uh, prophecy, at least in the New Testament, uh, is not inerrant, uh, that it can fail and it usually does uh, have some uh, errors in it. And what the theory uh, that some of these people um, uh, depend on is they say, okay, New Testament prophecy is totally different from Old Testament prophecy. And uh, there are two main reasons why I think we should reject that theory. And the first reason is that uh, uh, the New Testament uses the words prophecy and prophet interchangeably to describe both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets, sometimes in the same paragraph and even sometimes in the same uh, sentence. And so uh, to use this word prophet to describe things that are totally different would have been confusing on the highest order. It just does not seem on the surface to be something that's a reasonable theory. And I don't think these writers uh, thought so because just the way they use the terms. Secondly... We've seen throughout the book of Acts that the New Testament prophets were treated as being infallible in their prophecies, and we see hints of that right here. So let me read verses 21 through 26, and I think you'll just see some hints of this infallibility. Chapter 27, beginning at verse 21, "'But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, "'Men, you should have listened to me, not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss.' And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. I want you to notice he doesn't say, I think, or I feel, or it appears to me. He is absolutely certain this is what is going to happen. No one's going to lose their lives, and the ship will indeed be destroyed. Look at verses 23 and following. For there stood by me this night an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul you must be brought before Caesar. Notice the word must. This is a divine imperative. Uh, And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. There is inerrancy, just as it was told me. Okay, When prophecy comes, we can bank on every word. Verse 26, however, we must run aground on a certain island. So the running aground on Malta was not an accident, it was a part of God's divine imperative and he banked upon that certainty. And all of that to me speaks of Paul treating prophecy as inerrant. Uh, now I think the rest of the New Testament backs up that uh, assertion, but what I want to deal with is this connection then between God's prophetic word and how he backs it up with Providence. God's providence always backs up His Word. That's true, not only when He foretells something, that's something in the future, and then His providence comes along and ensures that that is fulfilled, but it's also true of His foretelling where He talks about something right now and He backs that up. His Word always back, uh, is backed up by His providence. And there are a lot of examples you could give, but I'll just give you one. 1 Corinthians 10:13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Now I want you to notice these words here. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He is guaranteeing that He is in such control of your circumstances that you will never be in that ethical dilemma where you have to sin. This sin, or you have to sin that sin. Now, He's going to control your circumstances so there's always a way of escape, and you can always handle it. And so that speaks of a beautiful synchronization between God's prophetic word and God's providence. They work together, and you can continue to trust God's providence today. Now, I want to go on to the next section. Uh, look at God's hand at work in common grace. And I need to start by defining it because there are different definitions out there. Uh, there are some very good men that I disagree with on this uh, subject. I uh, strongly disagree with Cornelius Van Til's definition of uh, common grace and the CRCs. And because it's been so problematic down through uh, through the decades, I guess it would be, Uh, There are denominations like the PRC that have completely rejected the concept of common grace altogether, but I really think there's a middle road that is more balanced. I think there is such a thing as common grace. We just need to define it right. And here's my definition. I'm just going to go ahead and read it for you off of your outline. (coughs) Common grace is God's kindness and goodness at work in the lives of all men for the sake of His people and the advancement of God's kingdom. This involves restraining sin, giving abilities, bestowing good things, etc., so that this world does not totally fall apart. In the process, the wicked are benefited even though it ultimately is for the sake of the kingdom. I word it that way because I just do not buy into the idea that when God gives rain and sunshine and these other gifts to unbelievers that it's showing His love for them or His favor for them. John 3, 36 is quite clear that the wrath of God abides on them. There can be no favor to people apart uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, a better way of seeing it is that Christ's cross has purchased things for His kingdom and for His people, and the benefits to His kingdom also benefit the unbelievers. That's what makes it common. It's common grace. Ray Sutton and Gary North liken it to crumbs that fall off of the table of the kingdom. And I think that's a good way of looking at it. There's an overflow. God is so generous in the way in which he benefits his people that it's automatically going to be benefiting all of the people uh, who are uh, around them. Now, some people speak of this as restraining grace. It may be a better term, but there's a little bit more than just restraining grace. But restraining grace is definitely a part of that. It means that unbelievers will not face ju- as severe a judgment as they otherwise would if God hadn't restrained their sin. Okay? What's common to all is the temporal benefits of grace, even though the focus is always on the elect. Okay, now some of you, this is just like, whoa, this is over my head. It's an academic question. Don't worry about it too much. Um, just realize God does good things for everyone, unbelievers. If he didn't, if there wasn't common grace, people would be instantly sent to hell. That instantly, I mean, there just would not be any patience, there wouldn't be any any sunshine, rain, any things like that. God gives good things to uh, pagans, but he does it for the benefit of his kingdom, for the benefit of the extension of his kingdom. Grace always flows toward the elect, even though it benefits the believers in the process. So let's take a look at the common grace that we see here, and that's in verse 2. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Now, these guys are depraved sinners, and yet they're showing what Luke calls unusual kindness. Now, I don't know about you, but I know unbelievers like this. I know unbelievers who are unusual in their generosity, their kindness. Uh, The love that they show to their kids, the love that they show to their neighborhoods, and things like that. In fact, the word that's used here is a word that includes uh, love in it. Not agape love, but there is, you know, eros, phileo, and agape. This is phileo love. Philanthropia. That's what we get philanthropy from. And uh, here's the dictionary definition of it affectionate concern for and interest in humanity, loving kindness. And the phileo part means a friend's love uh, one to another. So here are two extremes that people need to avoid on this area of common grace. And the first one is to say that because the motive, goal, and standard of any action needs to be godly for it to be a godly action, it means that there can be no action that an unbeliever does that is good. Now I would say that it's true that there can be no action that an unbeliever does that's not defiled by sin, but Scripture itself says that there are good things that they do. Now, they will appeal, this one extreme, will appeal to Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, and let me read that for you. "'But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away.'" He says, everything we do is filthy. And so they say, see, you cannot get worse than filthy. You're totally depraved, not just in the sense that the totality of your being is affected by sin, but you're as bad as you can possibly get. I reject that notion, and most Reformed people do, by the way. But there are some who think that's as bad as people can get. But that, that verse does not teach that. It does not say that there is no goodness that an unbeliever can do. In fact, it says exactly the opposite. Let me read that for you again. All our righteousnesses, so we do have righteousnesses, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In other words, the righteousnesses of a pagan are good, otherwise they wouldn't be called righteousnesses, but... Those righteousnesses are so tainted by sinful motives, sinful goals, sometimes even sinful standards, that they're incapable of making these people acceptable to God. So just think of it like an omelette. You can have several good eggs in an omelette, but you throw in three green, rotten, sour eggs, and it doesn't matter how many good eggs you've got in there, the whole omelette is utterly unacceptable because it stinks, you know, it'll make you sick. Uh, And that's the way it is with our works. We can have good things that we do, but it won't gain God's favor because it's defiled uh, by sin. But think of it this way. Would you rather have a neighbor next door who's a pagan murderer or a pagan philanthropist like these guys? Okay? I'd much rather have a pagan philanthropist next to me because we're going to get along fine, you know? We're going to have a good time together. And I think we need to think of it this way. One is indeed better than the other. And so the Bible nowhere says that unbelievers can't do any good things. Of course they can. God puts that goodness into their lives by restraining their sins. See, if God did not restrain sin, what would happen? Almost immediately, people would plummet down into the worst dregs of humanity. That's what Romans 1 is talking about. When it talks about... uh, giving up pagans who have resisted and resisted God's grace, he gives them up unto a depraved mind. What's he doing? He's withdrawing his restraining grace where they will automatically fall. He doesn't have to shove them down. He's just withdrawing common grace from them and they automatically uh, will sin. But that restraining grace, that's common grace, that's a goodness that God is giving uh, to all men. And so... um, that's the first error. The second error is to use passages like this to teach the innate goodness of man. Okay, one extreme says, there ain't no goodness in man. The other says, hey, men are basically good in their hearts. The only reason a criminal is a criminal is because of a bad environment. It's not a bad heart. And this is basically the liberal viewpoint. Did you know that this was the reason for the prohibition? They, They figured, hey, if we can get rid of all alcohol, there won't be any drunkards. This is great. Control the environment, but they never address the heart. And it just, does not, uh, it just does not work. You've probably heard the expression, noble savage. You know, Rousseau and other liberals from the 1700s and on, they said, okay, it's society that has infected man somehow, and men are basically good. If you could go back to a primitive state, some of these tribes that are out there, you're going to find that these people are noble savages. Well... It's a nice theory until they started running across these noble savages and got eaten <laughs> or they saw some of the other barbaric cruelties that they practiced on women and some of the things that they did, they just are horrified. And yet to this day, liberals still have this basic notion that it's the environment that's at the problem. That's why big government, you've got to control the environment. They don't see the problem as being something in the heart. Conservatives, generally speaking, see it as a heart issue, not an environment issue. And so that's a big issue we we need to think through. You know why penitentiaries got started? It's because of bad theology. Quakers started penitentiaries in, in the 1700s, I think it was. And their idea was exactly the same thing. If we can only get people away from a bad environment, give them time out, make them think about their bad actions for a little while, eventually they will become penitent. That's the name penitentiary, okay? They'll become penitent. Well, it just doesn't work. Why? Because they're bringing their bad nature right with them in there. They get worse, if anything, in the penitentiary. And so those are the two extremes that we're talking about. First, seeing no good in unbelievers. The second is failing to see the corruption, the depravity that is there. So the first thing I want you to notice is that these pagans demonstrate depravity and false religion. First evidence, they're legalists. They hold to the view of salvation that Paul anathematized in Galatians. Let me read you Paul's anathematization, Galatians 1 and 8 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, than what you have received, let him be accursed. So these people would have been under the curse of Paul. For example, in verses 3 through 4, they assume bad things happen to evil people. Okay, that's the reason why you're suffering. You you got evil. That's the assumption of legalists. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand, So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. So on that theory, bad things happen to bad people. never happen to good people. Now, they have to suddenly adjust uh, their, not their theory, but their application of the theory because they see Paul doesn't fall down dead. And so they... Don't assume that their theology is wrong. That's what they should have assumed. Uh, People don't ditch their presuppositions that easily. Not at all. Instead, these people, they're so set in their false religious views, they would rather come to the absolutely ridiculous notion that Paul is a god. And that's pretty ridiculous when you look at Paul. uh, I don't know if you remember those descriptions we gave of Paul. Pretty ridiculous. But they would rather do that than abandon their presuppositions. Look at verses 5 through 6. "...but he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time, saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God." So you can see that they had a works righteousness approach to life, which is an abomination in the sight of God. They thought bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. You have to earn your way to salvation. And the Bible says, no, no one can earn his way to salvation. It's impossible." They were idolaters. They were quite ready to worship and serve Paul, a creature, rather than serving the true and the living God. So their hearts are sinful, and their sinful hearts are factories of idols. And yet despite their distance from God, they clearly do what the writers, older writers spoke of as civic good. In fact, some of what these guys are doing here, I think, put Christians to shame. I mean, Christians ought to be doing this plus more, okay? But look at verse 2 again. The natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire, made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Verse 7, we see a leading citizen receives them into their estate and entertains them, gives hospitality despite the fact that his father is seriously sick with dysentery. He had every reason in the world to say, you know, we really can't right now extend any hospitality, but they do. So here's my point. Don't assume the worst of unbelievers. God is at work in their lives to benefit the kingdom. So don't be surprised when pagans want to turn around. They want to bless you. They want to do nice things for you in the way that he blessed Paul. If all things work together for the good of God's people and for God's glory, that means even people who are headed to hell are part of God's good plan in your life. That's common grace. We can expect God's hand working in their lives via common grace by restraining sinful expressions, of their sinful hearts, by motivating them to do good things, by giving them financial abilities, mental abilities, artistic abilities, architectural abilities, you, you name it, that will benefit the kingdom for hundreds of years to come. I don't avoid computers just because pagans developed the computers and maybe have used the money for ungodly purposes. No, I bless God for His common grace and I use the computers, especially Macintoshes, for a good, <laughs> a good purpose, Right? I don't avoid politics simply because there are bad politicians out there uh, who have used politics for ungodly reasons. What I do is I say, praise God for his common grace. It's at work in raising up other politicians who will put in check and balance these bad guys out there and that God will use these people to benefit uh, his Christians. He did it with Publius here. He's done it countless times before. I don't avoid using banks or the stock market or pagan grocery stores or Kmart or, or Walmart or other stores simply because the owners are pagan, okay? What does Proverbs 12 and verse 32 say? It says, the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the righteous, okay? God is benefiting His kingdom through these very people. So I'm not going to be overly righteous. That's an expression that comes from Ecclesiastes. You're overly righteous. In other words, you're legalistic is what it's saying. I'm not going to be overly righteous by condemning absolutely everything that an unbeliever does. If I condemn everything they do, I'm condemning some of God's common grace. Can you understand that? I'm condemning the good that God is working in and through their lives. Value common grace by valuing what Reformed writers have spoken of is the civic good that is in non-Christians. On the other hand, we shouldn't go to the other extreme and ex- uh, assume the innocence of primitives. I would much rather live in pagan, technologically savvy America than I would in a primitive society that's just as pagan. Okay? Because I think there still are a lot more remnants of God's common grace here. But common grace is at work in both those societies, and both those societies desperately need to hear, you're headed toward hell, and apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, putting your faith in Him, you cannot have salvation. They need to put their trust in Jesus. Okay, that's the main part. Let's rush through some of these other points. Uh, Related to this is God's hand in protective grace. Protective grace. God not only protected Paul from, you know, potentially fearful natives who might have killed them, he protected Paul from the viper when he went in to heal Publius. He protected him from whether it was a, you know, a virus or it was a bacteria or whatever it was, he protected him from the dysentery. And the Lord has protected us in countless ways down through the years. One time uh, we were driving up uh, I-29 and there was a tornado, Right? Right out there in the field, right beside, the the wind was so strong, even though we were parked in our van, it was moving around. Uh, God has protected us from collisions, you know, so many near escapes down through the years. Uh, How many times does God spare us from mildew in the house and mice and ants and other pests. That's what Deuteronomy 28, it talks about His blessings. We need to get used to thinking again like Deuteronomy 28 does. God's in control of all, of history, of all of creation. Now, my parents uh, told me the story of this uh, new convert who was a young girl out in Ethiopia. And I know I've told you this story before, but I love it anyway, so I'm going to share it again. But uh, she came to Christ, was a fairly new believer, And on her way home, it was cold, it was raining, she slipped in the mud because she was hurrying to get home, cracked her head, and was unconscious for quite some time. When she came to, there was a leopard lying on her chest, breathing right into her face. First words out of her mouth, well, it didn't come out of her mouth, she prayed silently. First words that came to her mind is, thank you, Lord, that you have saved me from hell and from my sins, and if you want me to go to heaven right now, I bless you. The next word, Then I think every one of us needs to be in a position where we can say, I know for a fact, if I were to die right now, I would go to heaven. So she not only thanked God, but she said, Lord, please save my life, spare my life, so that I can speak of the gospel to my friends and to my family. Immediately, the leopard got up, walked away, looked at her, walked a little bit further on, looked back at her, and then walked off into the woods. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, God continues to have His hand of providence in absolutely all of the details of our lives. He controls nature. He controls pests. He controls all of these things uh, for His glory. God can uh, be just as much uh, His protective uh, care on a viper bite as He does with my brother's mosquito bite. Okay, a little tiny insect. And I, I, again, I thank God that my brother has, has uh, uh, just turned the corner yesterday afternoon and it looks like uh, his blood pressure is starting to stabilize and uh, his uh, kidney functions beginning to be restored uh, some. Uh, see, we can go to the Lord over all of these details, even the little parasites that are in, in our bodies. So again, thank you. I just can't resist one little side note here, though. I'm an animal lover who respects all of God's creation, even vipers and ants and uh, other pests that are out there. But I think some people take this idea to a false, false extreme when they say, for example, you can't use DDT out in Africa because it's going to kill all the mosquitoes. It will not kill all the mosquitoes. We got rid of malaria in America because of the use of DDT. We still have mosquitoes, okay? Um, (laughs) But um, not only uh, are they frustrated with getting rid of mosquitoes, but they don't want to get rid of all of these parasites because they're a part of God's creation too. So if you're one of those people who has a hard time killing the mouse that's been eating up your pantry, or you have a hard time killing the carpenter ants in your house that are destroying your house, I think you need to meditate on this passage a little bit because this passage does not say... Paul took the the viper and he stroked it and gently put it on the ground and let it slither off into the woods. No. What does it say here? But he shook off the creature into the fire. He let it die, okay? It was a pest, you know, something that deserved to be killed. Don't feel guilty killing pests that are destroying your property, your, your produce, and even your own life. I think killing pests is every bit as much a part of the dominion mandate as controlling thorns and thistles were. We were supposed to control weeds and thorns. Well, we're supposed to control pests as well. And I I just think this is a great passage that shows a balance that you just do not have in the Green Movement. Okay, point four. We can also see God's hand in divine contacts established on this island. I've already mentioned that the history of Malta tells us that this is the first nation to be converted to Christianity, and no doubt it was in part due to Publius. He had a great deal to do with that. Verse 7, In that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. God can give our church all of the contacts that we need to really prosper in this coming year, And to be leveraged in a way where we're going to have a big influence in this culture. He can do that. God's hand is in the divine contact. God can give biblical blueprints, the contacts that we need. In fact, this last year, it's just been phenomenal. Uh, In the fall, we finally finalized the translation team. We've got potential of 10. But right now, we've got working five translators with a, a guy who heads up the team who I have not been able to detect over two days of conversation one single point of difference between him and me. And I didn't play my hand as to what I believed. I was questioning him. It's just remarkable how God brings contacts into our lives. Now, here's the point. God brings divine contacts every day into your lives as well. And he does it so that you can minister to them and so that they can minister in your lives. And you shouldn't just think of these divine contacts as being, you know, big and great people you need to begin thinking of every single person in this congregation as a divine contact that God's used to help form you. We're part of a body related and influencing one another. You need to begin to think of every person at work, every neighbor that you have as a divine contact and saying, okay, Lord, what are the opportunities? What are the things you want me to be engaged in? I know your hand is at work in these people. Now, sometimes the divine contacts sure don't look like divine contacts. seems like Satan's sending these people along. But you know what? Uh, One of the things that's really given me help is when I made that personal timeline of my life. Based on Romans 8.28, I started looking at all of the things that influenced me from the time of my birth all the way through to the late 40s. Events, people, ideas. Sometimes they made me go in a wrong direction and God turned it around and made me even stronger as a result But all of these things, even the evil people that came into my life, God has used to craft and make me to be who I am. And God's doing exactly the same thing in your life. Don't just think of the extraordinary people. Everybody uh, is one of these divine contacts. And it's just exciting. It's exciting when you see, hey, God is at work, not only in me, God's at work in other people for, for my benefit. And in me, for their benefit. It's just a wonderful concept. In verses 8 through 9, we see God's hand at work in healing. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. God continues to be at work in healing. Uh, not just supernatural healing, but the kind of ordinary healing that happened through my, my brother John yesterday uh, afternoon. I was, uh, you know, waiting as long as he did. He waited for, for eight days, uh, uh, you know, almost meant his death. But, you know, just because you go into the hospital doesn't mean that the medicine is going to work. You've got to look to the Lord through that. Every time you take an aspirin, every time you take a vitamin or whatever it is else you take, you need to be saying, Lord, please bless this to my body. We don't pray at meals just for, you know, because it's a tradition to do. We need God to give proper nutrition uh, through us. And so we've got to see God's hand in, in healing. Now, one of the things, though, I think we need to be encouraged on is we need to expect that God continues to be a God of supernatural healing. And there's a lot of people that deny this. They doubt it. Supernatural healing of the kind where this guy bitten does not suffered at all from the poison or supernatural healing that he gave uh, to Publius's father. The Bible does not say that healing and miracles are only signs of an apostle. They were indeed signs of an apostle. But listen to the Mark 16. And these signs will follow those who believe. Those who believe. Those who believe, not just apostles, These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Even though the Bible does indicate, I think very clearly, that prophecy... And apostleship has ceased. I see nothing in the scripture to say that healing and miracles have ceased. And I think we need to look to the Lord. He is a powerful God who continues to work in these ways. You know, when James says, if you're sick, go to the elders, get anointed with oil, be prayed over, and you'll be healed, okay? Or pray for one another, it says. You had two options that are given in James. What's he assuming? He's assuming God's hand is continuing to work in healing. So here's my question. Do you recognize God's hand in healing in your life? Do you expect it? Do you pray concerning it? Now, the last verse shows that God's invisible hand was also at work in financially and tangibly providing for all who were on the ship. It says, They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. Now, when you're a steward... There are times where the master asks for his things back. And that's the right of a master. You know, everything we have belongs to God. If he wants to ask them back, he can ask for them, And we need to have an attitude of Job's. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But you know what? When you have that stewardship attitude, more often than not, God gives you more, many times double what he took away, just like he did with Job. And I think that's what's going on. Uh, in this passage, God can entrust you with more when you've got a stewardship attitude that gives it all up to the to the Lord. So I'm trusting God to uh, with this church uh, to restore in His perfect time. We have gladly given up to the Lord. People, finances, you know, uh, emotional energy expense. We've given to the Lord and we don't expect. But you know what? Uh, the Lord says... We can expect from Him even double what we have expended. And I, I think it's just not a problem to say, Lord, uh, you've, you've taken away, You've given. We're going to bless Your name, but we know that You're a generous God. And we just pray that You would open up the windows of heaven in blessing this congregation. We can trust Him on things like money, food, gas, electricity, medicine. His hand is everywhere. Amen? Absolutely everywhere. There's one last provision that's only implied here, so I'm not going to take a lot of time on it. But if you study the history of Malta, you'll find that this whole island embraced Christianity as a result of this shipwreck. In fact, the history of Malta shows that the leaders of this island were instrumental in helping Paul to get to at least one other island right nearby to preach the gospel there as well. And there's archaeological history going back and, uh, that shows this. And here is my last admonition. I would encourage you to always be on the lookout for opportunities to share the gospel with others. Take tracks with you everywhere you go. Just say, hey, you know, this is a track that's really benefited me. Why don't you just read it? Maybe I'll talk with you next week about it. But have tracks. In fact, these are two of the goals that the session has had for this coming year, 2010. We want to be much more deliberate in the way in which we think about distributing tracts and getting everyone in our congregation to distribute tracts, uh, here is another goal that we have uh, that we have established. We want to uh, train everyone in this congregation on a three-minute presentation of the gospel that's graphical. Okay, even if you're not uh, real theologically astute, this is graphical. You just draw on a napkin in uh, you know a coffee shop somewhere. And in three minutes, you can show the whole gospel to some person who doesn't know anything about it. So this is something. Keep your eyes open. If God's hand is in absolutely everything, you can expect His hand is going to be giving you opportunities to share the gospel as well. But it's my hope that uh, as a result of looking at this, you're going to have a renewed sense of joy and confidence in seeing God's hand in every area of your life. Amen. Father, thank You for this, Your Word. And we want to have any blinders that keep us from seeing uh, your presence in our lives removed. Take off the scales, Lord, and help us to see with eyes of faith and to live by uh, faith and uh, not uh, simply by sight. I pray that you would work powerfully in this congregation and that uh, we would find great joy in recognizing that whether in the storm or after the storm, your hand is always present. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.